0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lisette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Richard Cohen about his new and truly marvelous book, Making History, The Storytellers Who Shaped the Past. Your book, Richard, asks the questions that, to my mind, are the first and foremost of all questions that any of us can ask. How do we know what we think we know? And if not, from the reading of history, how do we discover who, what, and where we are? History is not what happened three or three thousand years ago. It is a story about what happened three or three thousand years ago. But among all the many thousand tellers of the tales, how do we know which ones to believe? Maybe you can begin with the method of your own book. How do you go about the telling of your tale? Well, implicit
1: in what you've said is that history seems such a simple word, and it's not, because it's at least two things. It's the past, but it's also the way people recount the past. And it's very easy in anything one reads or talking or whatever to elide the two. And in its second meaning, how people tell uh, the story of the past, it means that we get the past through a filter, the filter of other people. And I was concerned, uh, this is not historiography. I think that word comes into the book about once, when I couldn't avoid it. It's about the historians, the people who have told us, so um, the method in my madness was always to see whether the character or the pressures on the people who told us about the past was relevant to how they told it. And I remember talking to a historian in Britain, a professor of history, at one of the London, L- London universities. And he said, "He's a Spanish catholic you said oh richard you're not going to be so boring as to begin with herodotus (laughs) and i thought about this and instead i began with this is if you like my method the story of don david knowles who is forgotten now and little known to americans but he was regis professor of history at cambridge university and he's a monk a benedictine monk from the same benedictine abbey Where I was schooled, I was, despite my surname of Cohen, I had an Irish Catholic mother and was sent away to this all-boys school, half an hour's run from Bath, studied history, and our special paper was the dissolution of the monasteries. And I learned that this David Knowles character was the expert on the subject, and his view of them was that the monks had it coming to them. They were dissolute and not really obeying the the rule of St. Benedict
0: and then I a the monastery uh, is being wiped out by Henry VIII
1: absolutely and it struck my teenage unformed mind that he must really have had an agenda and I later learned that he'd actually tried to foment a rebellion in his own day in the monastery and been pushed out and so he absolutely had an agenda when he took to writing history of putting the ideas he had about monastic rule when he was a monk Into the books he is writing about religious life in years gone by.
0: So that you develop the idea that all historians have an agenda, whether they admit it or not.
1: Yes. There's that wonderful um, moment in one of Tom Stoppard's plays when two journalists are talking together. And one is saying, you know, I am going to be objective. And his um, comrade in arms says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to be objective for or objective against? (laughs) And I remember asking Eric Hobsbawm whether he felt he could ever be objective. And he sat back, wonderful 92-year-old, still writing furiously. And he laughed and said, of course not. I can't be objective, but I do try to obey the rules.
0: Hobbs-Holm is a, who was he? I
1: mean, Eric Hobsbawm was arguably the greatest English language historian of the 20th century. And he wrote four books on 19th, meaning 19th and early 20th century history, which are absolute classics of history writing. But he ruined his life, or certainly his reputation, in that from his teenage years on, he joined the Communist Party when he was brought up initially in Germany. He ended up in London. And he never disavowed the party, even when the Soviet Union Invaded Hungary in 1956 and then did the same thing in Czechoslovakia in 1968. While many people outside the Soviet Union um, left the party and gave up on communism, or certainly the Soviet style, um, Eric Hobsbawm remained loyal
0: and he has been criticized ever since and it's hurt his reputation. I think I've read at least one or two of his. Four books that you mentioned. Capital is one of them. That's right. And then, is Age it, of the, Empire? Age of Empire, and then the last one is something about chaos. As like, I remember, but well, the last thing he wrote was
1: his autobiography, right. in which he tried to make sense of his loyalty. And it's interesting; he had to choose between communism and fascism. And in his teenage days, the Communist Party gave him refuge. And it was almost like, you know, Citizen Kane and the um, sleigh he named Rosebud. The Communist Party was Hobsbawm's Rosebud. He never wanted to surrender what they had given him in his teens. And so he remained loyal.
0: The thing that's so, Hobsbawm is only one of the many historians whom you write about and give us insight into, and and the marvelous thing about the book is the range. I mean, I, I mean the amount of study and reading and and detail that you bring to your pages is it makes it alive. Give give the listener some idea of the range of the historians that you you start with your man Knowles, but then you go back and begin with Herodotus and Thucydides. So give us some clue as to the names in the long parade of voices that you
1: so Well, summoned. let me say something about Herodotus. The business of writing about the past, of thinking about the past, doesn't come automatically. And if any society... civilization is really to progress they have to advance to new ways of thinking and thinking about the past having an interest in history is one of the ways in which they develop and Herodotus brought that to the fore and I begin with that because as I say I'm not writing historiography but I do chart the ways in which the approach to thinking about the past and writing about it or you know narrative painting the various ways in which the past can be portrayed that's changed over the centuries so you go from dry chronicles to slightly more informed chronicles to annals then you have historians in the middle ages creating great myths particularly English and French historians like Geoffrey of Monmouth or Froissart in order to give their nations a mythology that they could be proud of and then you get when you reach Voltaire and Gibbon, two really idiosyncratic historians who were intent on breaking the hold of the Christian church, the Catholic church, but also the various Protestant forms of Christianity. And you didn't have to write history according to a theology. You didn't have indeed to take the authority of the church as gospel truth at all. And they, of course, were hugely criticised for that. And when Edward Gibbon wrote chapters 15 and 16 of his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is about the ruinous effect of Christianity on the Roman Empire, he was hugely criticised and then kind of wrote a book justifying those chapters. But then in the 19th century, churchmen in Britain, and across Europe and, and North America as well wrote profusely a kind of army of churchmen writing histories of their country with God in his heaven who had to be listened to. So that was another branch and that kind of narrowing of history. I have a, a long chapter on historians in Islam and the narrowing effect of the followers of Muhammad where Basically, the writings of Muhammad were portrayed as all you needed, that and commentaries on it. You didn't need to read any other books. And so you got the same current day narrowing of history in this faith followed by millions of people. Muslims will not allow individual judgment in the way you write history. But, you know, I'm not criticizing them any more than I criticize, criticize um, the first Christians. They both stopped historians really using their judgment now after that you know i've written about macaulay i've written about von Renke, leopold von Renke, who wrote mainly in the second half of the 19th century because he again transformed what history could be because he saw science again a word that was really used for the first time in the 19th century and all the things to be we think of as belonging to the sciences, came under that heading. He saw that leading to careers, academic careers, as universities gave professorships and careers to scientists. He thought, well, oh, I'd rather like historians to be in that position. And so he created what very telling were the discipline of history. He said we had to, if you we were really serious about writing history, go to primary sources. We had to have evidence. We had to comb the archives. He pioneered the way in which doctorates should be studied. And so he really put history on a professional level. And by the 1880s, the universities throughout Western Europe and America were founding professorships in history. And what Von Renker had been after, history was seen as an admirable profession to follow and then after that a profusion of names as you go through really into the 20th century and you have radio you have television you have the teledon and i go right up to you know ken burns simon Sharma, Niall ferguson um so it's
0: it's a stretch of two and a half thousand years go, go back from the moment to the beginning you begin with herodotus and thucydides and you, your point is that history Becomes a way of thinking. I mean, it's it's not divine revelation, and it's not really the scientific method. It's it, it's a uh, and and you find a difference between uh, Herodotus and Thucydides. I mean, we're in the what fifth century BC with Herodotus, right? Yeah. And then a hundred years later with Thucydides. And well, Thucydides has
1: got. His supporters and his great speeches, all of which he made up, are masterpieces of writing. Right. But he is hugely different from Herodotus. Explain. Well, Herodotus was called by Cicero the father of history because his book encapsulating all his travels was called the histories, although probably a better translation is the researches is a mixture of wonderful observation, insatiable curiosity, tremendous telling of stories, but it's also got totally incredible stories. So that Plutarch said, father of history, father of lies, more likely. And, um you know, people with their heads in the middle of their bodies or flying flying people flying through the air, a whole range of things which belong to myths rather than proper history. And Thucydides, who never mentions Herodotus by name, would have none of that. He was a retired, well, and disgraced general. And he believed in an absolutely more sober account. And It's not just that Thucydides isn't the easiest of names to say. He wrote in a pretty difficult, abstruse Greek and... um, He's wonderful in his way, but it's rather like people saying Tolstoy against Dostoevsky. Of course, I want them both, but one often finds that people side in preference for one or the other. And it's a bit the same with Herodotus and, and Thucydides. And I confess that marvelous those Thucydides can be, I'm a Herodotus
0: man. Right, because he tells a better story. He tells a better story. But that's the other thing that's so interesting about... You, you deal with, I don't know how many, 80 or 90 yeah. historians. Yeah. You know? But the ones that we remember, the ones that we draw upon are the ones that could write well and the ones that tell a good story. I mean, the, I know most of the historians that I know and learn from are not academics. Well, that was one of
1: the main points about my book. Um, I remember talking to Robert Skidelsky, the biographer of Keynes, among other things. And as Skidelsky said, few people have anything new to say. Um, It's the way they tell it that's important. Right, yeah. And we're all historians. I mean, you could say, you'll never believe what happened on on the way to the office today. I bumped into so-and-so, and and, um, they'd just been burgled, and they caught the burglar on the way. Whatever it might be, a personal story. You don't think of yourself as a historian, but you're selecting and shaping something that has happened, either to you or to someone else. And one of the themes of the book is that I wanted to show that the past comes down to us, not just through professional historians, not through the academy. It comes comes through novelists. I've got a chapter on, on the historians of the Bible, I've got a chapter on Shakespeare in that um, our idea of key people in the Tudor age is more Shakespeare's than anything that anybody else has said or the professional historians have told us. And the same, of course, with Antony and Cleopatra and Julius Caesar. Um, you know, Richard III is utterly not what the Academy teaches. It's Shakespeare's Richard III.
0: Well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I mean, my, my own... I I learned where I was in New York in 1960 by reading Flaubert and trying to understand understanding myself at home in France in 1860. I mean, uh, whenever I would look at Nancy Reagan, I would think of uh, Louis the Napoleon's wife. <laughs> you know the uh, so, but it, it's like. I think at one point you talk about geological strata. I mean, the, the overlaying of various stories of history and with, with your own learning and telling of the tale. Well, all your questions always from about
1: three different strands. I mean, I could go on about that group of French novelists, Flaubert and Zola and... Balzac. Uh, Uh, absolutely, Um, who saw themselves as social historians yeah, um, and went on record of saying, we are describing the history of our
0: times, but through fiction. Flaubert actually goes to the point of saying that if people had read my book properly, there would have been no Franco-Prussian war. In other words, it was meant to be useful. And the same thing is true of, of Livy, Well,
1: except that Livy was writing to glorify Rome. He was telling the history of Rome because he thought the Romans were the top dogs that there ever had been. Um, Most of the group of French novelists we're talking about were, as much as anything else, talking about the iniquities and the corruption of their societies, and what they wanted to have changed. So to that extent, the motive was very different. But then again, if you get, going into our own times, somebody like Hilary Mantel, I've teased her about the fact that I think she wrote her Cromwell trilogy because she was so fed up with the way that Robert Bolt in A Man for All Seasons had glorified Thomas More, St. Thomas More, and made Cromwell into a villain that she was determined to flip that view of the two men, of the two Thomases. And now, I would reckon, for the foreseeable future,
0: Thomas Cromwell is Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell. I would hope so. He's <laughs> a far more likable and admirable figure than the one previously known to us. Talk about the your chapter on the Bible. I mean, the Bible is, is the Bible history. And, I mean, you point out it was... It's an anthology, I mean, written in three languages by.
1: Well, it's a translation of a translation.
0: Well, talk talk more about divines.
1: I was very wary on that chapter because, you know, Christians and Jews are a knowledgeable and pugnacious lot at times. But I remember going to various experts, John Barton, who's the. Emeritus Professor of Theology at Oxford University, and then a man called Friedman, who in 1987 wrote a book about the Bible, which is a detective story about the five main writers in the Old Testament and how the Bible is a stitching together of their different accounts and the editing of those accounts into, I won't say a single narrative, because there's all kinds of contradictions in it. But the kind of history that you get, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament too, in the end, most present-day biblical historians would agree, is propaganda. We don't know about whether there was ever a King David. We don't know absolute basic facts that we take as crucial to our Christian or Jewish faiths. But um, although it was intended to propagate the faith. Um, it contains wonderful, wonderful history in between the lines. So as a cultural artifact, I can put it like that, the Bible is massively important. But um, as with any work of history, one must be very suspicious about what the authors are trying to do.
0: So what, what do we say to people who take the, the Bible literally?
1: I think if one was to avoid too tempestuous an argument, you'd say, well, the five first books of the Bible were said for hundreds of years to be written by Moses. But this is a bit awkward, as in the last of the books, Moses dies, so he's writing about his own death. And so in the 19th century, you had a, a grudging acceptance that Moses was not the author. And in the decades since, every bit of the Bible has been open to being pushed back a weeny bit further in terms of... This bit is allegorical. This bit's propaganda. This bit has but scant relation to what we know factually. And as particularly archaeologists have come up with new revelations, so those who believe in a literal reading of the Bible have had to retreat. I mean, sometimes they haven't chosen to retreat, um, but
0: the evidence is against them. The other thing that's so wonderful about your book, Richard, is that you see... If I read you rightly, I, I think you see in history is it, not simply a collection of names and dates, but it's a vast storehouse of human consciousness. Well,
1: we still haven't solved the great question of what consciousness is, and when it comes to history, you know what, for instance, do novelists tell us? Well, in one way, you get people like Tolstoy, who are saying, "I was a reporter." during Cossack Wars. I've talked to generals and others who fought in the Napoleonic Wars. I don't want War and Peace to be called a work of a hist- uh, work of fiction. I don't quite want it to be called a work of history. It's a, it's a new form of writing. But what he was doing is trying to say what actually happened in fact. And then you get someone like Solzhenitsyn, who always fashioned himself, wanted to be seen as a modern Tolstoy. His hatred of Stalin was a write-up following the way Tolstoy wrote about Napoleon. But Solzhenitsyn too, saying, this is really what happened. And I say in the book, which I haven't been shaken from, that the Gulag trilogy of Solzhenitsyns has done more to tell us what really happened over a period in history than any other work of fiction. But on the other hand, you get a huge range of novelists, and i include mantel in this who say well the professional historian can tell us a huge amount and the good professional historian certainly uses imagination i particularly like simon Sharma's history though he gets criticized by his peers by using too much imagination but mantel says novelists tell you what it was like they fill in the gaps we know so little about the past that you can't just go by what you find in the archives even primary sources important as they are private diaries private letters that whole range of things that historians use it takes a novelist with imagination to work out what figures in history whether they're kings or queens or presidents or men and women in the street what the the real quality of their life was like Um, yes and I wanted to emphasize that, that, you know, the, the good historical novelist gives us as much as the good historian.
0: Yes, I mean, so So what do you say to Sir Walter Scott, for example?
1: Well, he um, set the ball rolling in many ways. Mantell writing about Scott says, you know, the Scotland of his day is absolutely Sir Walter Scott's Scotland. Although, well, he started off as a poet, as a translator, An anthologizer of scottish ballads and then wrote himself and then when he realized that byron was doing the job rather better switched to fiction um but he made up much of the scottish mythology i mean bagpipes they were the invention of the ancient egyptians um kilts a whole range of things which he made up and put into his scottish novels came from his imagination and wonderfully so but uh Although, you know, um, Queen Victoria and Albert went about in kilts or whatever um, and totally believed in, in, in Scots, Scotland, it was just a story well told. But following him throughout Europe, uh, novelists said, this is the way to write. And um, Victor Hugo was told by his publisher, yeah. write in the manner of Walter Scott, that's the way to write a novel. Yeah. And you get in Spain, France... Again, in England, in Russia, um, you get huge bestsellers being written as historical novelists' novels in the Scott mode. So his his influence,
0: which lasted for years and years, was enormous. Talk about this quote from Coleridge: "You say so so much of what we learn and gain and know is proceeds from the imagination of the historian, but the imagination worked." Uh, in close collaboration with the facts. But Coleridge says the events themselves are immaterial, otherwise than as the clothing and manifestation of the spirit that is working within. And that's what you're after. It is what I'm after. I don't want to
1: denigrate or ignore the importance of getting the facts right. I know you don't. But, you know, um, there was a 1920s English historian by name Burns I think who said the amount we know of ancient Greece or ancient Rome is the equivalent to a badly bombed out factory uh, we know a minute amount. The books that have come down to us. What percentage are they? I shouldn't think they're even 10% of what was actually written at the time.
0: Constantine took the trouble to burn 80% of the of, uh Roman and, and Greek literature?
1: Well, Augustus um, refused to have, I think Livy and Suetonius, I may have got that wrong, but anyway, two leading historians in our estimation now, refused to have libraries, which he had built, refused them to have a place there. And that actually brings me to, if I may... By, um, by all means. Um, <laughs> another important theme, I talk about, you know, I, I quote an, epi, an epigram, an epigraph at the beginning of the book from E.H. Carr famous English historian yeah. of the 1950s and 60s you know he who would first be interested in history look at the historians first Yeah, and it's not just that people have their biases and their prejudices some wonderful books of history have been written in a very prejudiced way it's that those in power want history to be written their way and I never thought that my book would be highly topical. But last November, it was a front page story in the New York Times that President Xi of China had decided that Chinese history had to be rewritten according to government diktat. And we know, of course, that Putin is rewriting even day by day what is happening in Ukraine and that the facts of the war he has totally made according to Russian propaganda needs. But even before Ukraine, Putin decided that what would be taught in Russian schools and colleges had to be utterly reformed. And he closed down several publishing houses and made a government publishing house the main publisher of history textbooks. very lucrative exercise in that you could have print runs in Russia of over a million copies and has, I mean, he closed down Memorial, famous independent research place. Well, they had more than one um, office, but he closed them down, and so forbade the retelling and keeping of facts about the camps, the whole Gulag horrors, because he feels that the only history worth telling is glorious Russia's history.
0: I mean, you have a chapter about false history and patriotism I believe is not your
1: yeah title. and I talk about you know the Japanese um, refusing to accept the history the true history of 1931 to 1945 and how again textbooks the huge textbook battle in Japan which um, various Japanese governments have been determined to win but then if you look at Trump and his tearing up of a lot of Archives, because he didn't want certain parts of his history to be known and the fact that America is absolutely divided now as to what should be taught in its schools I know. as to the history of its country
0: that is top of the page of the news right now I mean the argument about what is American history what is the, the national story you know, well, I mean, one gets from that the fact that there's a crisis in
1: history that there's a crisis, not just China, and Russia, not just the extreme right wing of the Republican Party, but in any dictatorship, um, when someone has too much power, they want to shape the yes. their history and the history of their country. There's a cartoon that I put into the book because I rather I put cartoons into the the source notes to liven them up, and it shows a king on his throne and his turning to a courtier, and he says, I'm worried about my legacy. Kill all the historians.
0: Right. Well, that's also Orwell, who controls the present, controls the past, and who controls the past, controls the future. I mean, that's that's the idea. I mean, and we have that going on right now in this country, That, as you say. But it
1: means that people who are concerned about history and the history which, you know, shapes our sense of ourselves have got to fight for history to be properly told. And here, dictators join hands with the purveyors of fake news. Right. Because with the internet, there's this, again, tremendously powerful weapon for telling
0: falsehood. So is the camera. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, if you go to American television today, I mean, you know, I don't know, a thousand channels, but you can find... Uh, the American president being played by Nixon, by, I mean, on film, or or by Kennedy, or by... Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins, or Raymond Massey, or Kevin Costner. I mean, you know, there are at least 30 versions of the American president on screen at all times. Well, the thing is,
1: can we expect to find the truth about the past? I remember being given, as a sixth former, the essay subject, geography is the palimpsest of history. Well, I think it must be the other way around. History is a palimpsest of geography. Anyway, it was this fact that you have layers uh, of changing territories and changing countries and so on, but you also have layers of historical interpretation Right and... Um, you know, we know that Hitler is no longer alive. Yet, it's not so long ago that there was a poll amongst Americans that said that 43% of Americans believed Elvis Presley was still alive. Right. There was a poll. Not that I'm being anti-American. I'm just pointing out that there was a poll of English English schoolchildren, and the poll came back that I think that Alfred burning the cakes was true, and that Robin Hood was a a true person. But Winston Churchill was obviously a make-believe figure. (laughs) But as you get age upon age, historian upon historian, you get this accretion of what we accept as being valid. And that's not to say that the thing's thousands of years old, where we still don't know the truth. Who made Stonehenge? Why did they make it? How did they make it? Infinite theories, but are we any nearer an absolute understanding of that? You know, Richard the Third, as I said, is, our, is Shakespeare's Richard the Third. Um, it's the most popular play in his lifetime, and has pretty well been the most popular Shakespeare play ever since. He didn't have a hunchback in the, in the way we understand hunchbacks. It was a totally different physical condition he was suffering from. Um, and that's been something that's only become known in the last 20 years I know
0: they dug up the skeleton in a parking lot somewhere in England in Leicester yeah Yeah. (laughs) I, I don't want to get off the story of your book is there anything else you would like to say about it
1: I think that I'd like to say something about the dispossessed those for whom through the millennia have had it hard to get a proper say. Now that will obviously apply for hundreds of years to the poor, that historians would write about kings, queens, emperors, presidents, leaders of country. And it took revolutions in various countries for that to be changed. And um, I also have a chapter, although I write about women women, Throughout the course of the book, I have a chapter about women historians, right. because for centuries women were looked down on. Power was in the hands of men. Aristotle regarded women as a, a lesser, a lesser, ne- if necessary being. And although you do get isolated women historians, there's a wonderful Chinese woman of the second century AD who came to write history because she inherited it from her father and her brother both of whom died so she was allowed to continue their work and proved to be far better at writing history than either of them but they're isolated isolated examples and it's really not until at the best mid-19th century and on through the 20th century that women normally from very privileged backgrounds were well-educated and had the leisure and the means to write history, that women historians began to get respect. But even then, when writing about women, they found that it was very difficult to find material, because women, being second-class citizens, material about their lives was discarded. And where it wasn't discarded, it was wrongly archived. If you wanted to hear about um, maybe a wonderfully courageous and interesting woman during the American Civil War, you have to go to her lover or her husband's archive to find out anything about them. So it's not just that women historians had a tremendous battle to be recognized. It's that women as the second sex, to have proper history written about them is an uphill battle finding the material. Do you find the same thing true of of, uh, blacks? Um, absolutely. People say uh, it's a kind of cliche that the North may have won the Civil War, but the South won the peace. Yeah. And Southern historians, the Dunning School of History, it isn't that they discounted slavery, they didn't talk about it or saw it as the system by which um black people, African Americans, had happy and well ordered lives. And that lasted certainly 60 years in the writing of American history. Right. And when you get wonderful writers like W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass writing a different kind of account, Bois was written off as a Marxist, a commie. We shouldn't take his writings too seriously. And um, you've got Herrick Clark writing about African-American history, going back to African history, being as rich as anything that white people's history could produce. Uh, and that's, again, been a revolution
0: in understanding. I, I know that, and, and a, a welcome revolution. And you also have this, because the, the the other great thing about history is, is that it belongs to all of us. I mean, storehouses, human consciousness, it, it's the story of the black experience as well as the feminine experience, right? I mean, anyway, it's mankind's most precious inheritance. Well, with that ownership
1: comes responsibility. So that when people talk about what degree or what kind of history of African-American existence in the States should be taught, people should be determined to say, What do we know? What can we say is true and fair? We also ought to be saying, to what extent is the Native American history being taught in schools? And I think we're still, I won't say at the very beginning, but we're still early on in the journey in finding out the best way and the most complete and fairest way that children should learn about their
0: history as Americans. What about the best means of doing it? Is is the written word sufficient or do you need uh, film? There are, all, there are all
1: kinds of means. The cinema is the, the cinema. great invention of the 20th century. Yes, I know. Television, the great continuation of that. You've got in people like Ken Burns and Henry Louis Gates Jr., wonderful explainers of history on television. That's been a hugely powerful way of making people better educated about the past. And you've also got, you know, in a way you could say, look, your book's 750 pages long. It could be 1,500 pages long, but don't drop it on your foot. I could have written about um, architecture. I could have written about... uh, Absolutely,
0: uh, you could have written about painting. You could have written about architecture.
1: I don't know whether you'd agree that... I have a section on the Bayeux Tapestry. I, I know. I'm telling William the Conqueror's invasion of uh, of England in 1066. Now, at one level, it was intended as a work of Norman propaganda. Baron Odo commissioned it, and he wanted to show how dastardly the English had behaved and how wonderful and foresighted, the Normans were, but he had to go to a group of nuns in the southeast of England, I mean Kent, who were experts in tapestry work and they put into this tapestry their own version of history so you've got this fantastic piece of narrative tapestry which has got the propaganda of both sides written into it. Yes, right.
0: Wonderful. Richard, it's a truly Wonderful book, and and, the, uh, and very, very timely. I think, g- given the the question of what is history, that is now at the top of the news. I have any final word that you would? Any last word that you would like to?
1: Just that I think the people who write about the past, and by write I mean interpret and give us the past, are speaking truth to power. That's not normally the way one thinks of historians. But I think it's the way that they're best understood.
0: Well, thank you, thank you, Richard Cohen, for speaking with us today about your new and marvelous book, "Making History: The Storytellers Who Shaped the Past." Thank you, Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than thirty percent off the cover price and subscribe today. For only $49, visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.